Royals Review Radio. I'm Max Reaper, the editor of Royals Review. Joining me as usual is Sean Newkirk. Sean, how are you doing this super weekend? I'm good. Um, wait a second. This is not. Is this the first pod of 2020? Can that be? No, we had a, we ah. had a couple already. Uh, okay. we, we've been a little tardy in the off season, but we've had a couple January 2020. Ah. Okay, well, yeah. maybe this will be the best one of the year so far. Yeah, well, obviously. Also here in the year 2020 is Matthew Lamar. Matthew, how are you doing tonight? Doing good. I hear there's a, a big game this weekend, I guess. I don't know. I think I'll watch it, maybe. Yeah, it's uh, it's involving a Kansas City team. We'll talk a little bit about those Kansas City Chiefs after the break. But first, we should probably touch upon some Royals action. Uh, the Royals... You know, they were in a championship game not that long ago, and one of the big parts of that team is Alex Gordon, and it looks like he's going to be back for another season of Royals baseball. It's been kind of rumored for a couple weeks now, and I know we've discussed it already a little bit, uh, but it is official now, a one-year, $4 million deal for Alex Gordon to return this year. And one interesting note is that he did waive his 10-5 rights uh, to block a trade, uh, in exchange for getting a $500,000 bonus if he is traded. So that does kind of open the, the open the way for a trade this summer uh, if there is an offer out there. So I guess, Sean, I just kind of wanted to get your impressions on the Gordon deal now that it's official. And do you think Alex Gordon is a possibility to get traded this summer? Um, I'll start off with the second question first. That, yeah, I don't know if he's a, a candidate really. You know, I think... I think it's a good idea to always try to acquire these types of candidates, and and not Alex Gordon exactly, but these candidates that you can flip in the in the uh, in the at the deadline. Um, but I don't know. I mean, like we know he didn't hit very well last year, so let's just call him a glove first guy because that's kind of what he is at this point. Because he doesn't run that much as well, you know, as well as he used to. We should know him to steal twenty something bases every year easily. Um, He's not as hasn't hit it as well. His power's kind of down. I mean, he's basically like a glove first guy, and like, is that something teams are giving up a lot of assets for? I mean, Billy Hamilton stuck around. I mean, it wasn't even like they couldn't find anybody for him. And obviously, Gordon's, I would say, a little better than Hamilton. But that's kind of the point: is that uh, yes, the theory is to trade him, but. I don't think glove first guys, which is kind of what Gordon is, fetch much um, or something that organizations don't just have in, at AAA that they could call up for. Um, now, as far as returning Gordon, him returning, I did think that part of me is disappointed because it's like, you know, Gordon had this perfect chance to kind of ride off into the sunset legacy a little a little lower because of how kind of poorly he was as soon as he got that his big contract, um, a contract that everybody loved and myself included loved at the time uh you know that kind of diminished it a little bit but you know he was a franchise legend obviously now it would have been i mean that would have been a perfect time for him to retire you know but i don't know now now he's back and i just i just keep asking myself like what good can this do like he can't help his legacy essentially even i think he's close to some milestone but uh, like uh, the third or fourth thing like all-time home runs for the Royals or something it's like okay great but I mean like what what value is he adding to himself or to this team other than you know obviously him making uh you know a million or or what is it three million or uh, four I forget how much his deal four, was four million dollars yeah. four four um him making four million you know I mean I don't know I I don't, I don't, I don't dislike it because I love Alex Gordon but I kind of think of like what's the point yeah, and I kind of understand that that sense, and I think from like a pure, pure baseball, cold, you know, objective 
viewpoint, it, it's not really, it doesn't really make sense for a rebuilding team to, to sign a guy like that. Um, you know, I think there, there, there could be some value in him being a mentor to younger players, but, but, you know, let that, frankly, that a lot of that gets overrated and you can probably get the same value from that. Um, you know, having him, you know, inviting him to the clubhouse once in a while or having, you know, having him as a coach or something like that. Um, but you know, in a lost season like this, where there aren't really a lot of great options. And I think we kind of mentioned this before, you know, it's for sentimental reasons. That's not the worst reason to bring back a guy. And if you feel like he's worth $4 million and you don't really have a ton of great options, then, you know, I can see it making some sense. But Matthew, I know we've kind of mentioned before how, you know, they don't have a lot of great options behind him, but I think some people would like to see what Brett Phillips and maybe to a lesser extent, Bubba Starling can do. Uh, so, how do you see them kind of handling the outfield mix? And, and what do you think about uh, the, the odds of Alex Gordon getting traded? You know, the outfield mix is going to be an interesting point, I think. Um, and not just because of Bubba Starling and Brett Phillips, who I think serve, um, you know, a, a good long look. Um, even if it's just a couple of months, I think they deserve that. But also behind them, they've got Nick Heath, who um, probably, you know, if the Royals didn't sign Alex Gordon, maybe he makes the opening day roster. Uh, I think that's a little less likely now, but I think Nicky's really close, um, and he can sort of fill a you know Gerard Dyson esque you know role. And I think it's a pretty safe bet that he'll be you know a, a decent you know defensive uh, replacement and fourth outfielder kind of guy at least. Um, and also the Royals have Khalil Lee as well, who um, was in Double A Arkansas, uh, probably going to go to Triple A this year. And Khalil Lee is theoretically one of their top hitting prospects. Um, so. It's uh, sort of four guys who could be in that center field spot. Um, and you also think, uh, well, the Royals are keeping Whit Merrifield around. So those are four guys who don't have as a spot at all to play, at least for the foreseeable future. I do think it sort of works out itself a little bit. Um, people get injured um, and then they get uh, demoted sometimes. Or you know they have they have um, bad stretches of games, right? There's there's no guarantee that if given the opportunity, Bubba Starling or Brett Phillips, neither of whom are top prospects at this point, um, would you know? There's no guarantee that they'd do great. Maybe they wouldn't. Um, but you know, I, I think the thing that you want to think about is it's it's Alex Gordon. It's not just some random person. I think the production on the field from Alex Gordon is going to be. Pretty pedestrian, and I wrote an article as sort of tongue-in-cheek uh, comparing Alex Gordon to Scott Pedsednik because um, when the Royals signed him, he was you know kind of a similar aging outfielder, um, you know, to be a veteran pe- presence on a clearly bad team, you know, as they move you know quote unquote into um, good playing. But it's it's just a interesting thing that the Royals signed him. And it has everything to do with Alex Gordon being Alex Gordon, you know. Um, and if you are okay with Alex Gordon, the legend, being on the team, then it's it's fine, you know. But if you're in favor of the total efficiency, we must have every single roster spot to have the maximum value for the maximum amount of years. This isn't the right choice. But that's, an, that's a legitimate question to ask, you know, whether or not Alex Gordon, the legend, is worth maybe giving up uh, you know, a couple of months of playing time to some fringe guys at best. Do you see him getting traded? Because, you know, we there was a report that the, the Atlanta Braves were interested in him last summer, and he did have kind of a resurgence with the bat a little bit. I mean, he was at least close to league average uh, offensively. 
I don't know whether that's sustainable. He'll be, he'll be 36 this season. Obviously, he struggled with the bat the last couple of years. As Sean said, he's pretty much a defense first. Hope you get some offense. So he'd probably be, for a contender, he'd probably be like a fourth or fifth outfielder. Um, it'd be weird to see him in a different uniform. Knowing how close he is to Dayton Moore, too, I imagine that Dayton Moore will kind of run it past Alex Gordon first before he trades him. Like, hey, the Braves are interested. Do you want to go to Atlanta and be a fourth outfielder? Um, but but we'll see. But but how do you feel about this? him waiving his no-trade clause? Yeah, that's the most bizarre part of all of it. But it sort of made sense. Uh, I don't know where I read this. I think maybe The Athletic. Um but there was a quote from Dayton Moore that said the reason why they built that into sort of his, his contract this year was if there's 10 to 5 rights, uh, which is what Gordon had. And for those of you who don't know, um, once players have enough uh, years on a single team, they basically get uh, the opportunity to veto any trade. So it's basically becomes a no trade clause. And so Gordon had that um, and they he basically declined that that no trade clause, that 10 to five deal. Um, But the thing that I read said that the reason why they built that into the contract was so that they could do it in a more sort of informal fashion, but that Dayton Moore was going to, you know, give him the, the opportunity to say no to a trade. They just didn't want to get the union involved and all the red tape and the, and the stuff. It was just more or less a, uh, making the process more streamlined, you know. So rather than f- doing all the paperwork and everything and making sure everything is good, they could just go to Alex Gordon and say, "Hey, are you okay with this?" And he can say yes or no. I, you're right. I don't see uh, more trading Gordon without his uh, and by his, I mean Gordon's uh, permission. Well, speaking of players from the championship era that are returning, the Royals brought back former uh, two-time All-Star closer Greg Holland on a minor league deal that can pay him. $1.25 million if he makes the team, plus another $1 million or so in incentives. The 34-year-old Holland spent the first six years of his major league career with the Royals from 2000 to t- 2010 to t- 2015, earning 145 saves. Uh, but he, uh, he, he did have Tommy, Don- Tommy John surgery in 2016, which led to his uh, release from the Royals, but he bounced back with the Rockies in 2017 to lead the, team, lead the league in saves with 41. The last two years, he's kind of struggled. He's bounced around from the Cardinals to the Nationals to the Diamondbacks. Last year, he had a 4.54 ERA with 17 saves uh, with the Diamondbacks before they released him in August. So, Sean, what do you think of Greg Holland coming back? He's 34 years old. His velocity is way down. Can he Can he make this team? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's a good question. I, I think he... C- I, I've been thinking about it, and I haven't had that much time to think about it with just kind of how recent it was um, just yesterday. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I never give – on a rebuilding squad, especially a squad that lost, you know, 100-plus games, I never give second thoughts to thinking if a guy can or can't make the team because, like, <laughs> they lost all those games for a reason because literally everybody else on the – everyone on the team was pretty bad. So it, you could just swap out bad players. Um, it It's really been amazing – how far he's dropped like he was he was a very good reliever he had those two really good years in 12 and 13 and a little bit in 14 um but there was that three-ish year window where he was an elite reliever and then it's like just gone just fell off the planet earth which is what we've often seen with the relievers wade davis uh, another good example um so i have no idea what he's going to be like did he pitch i didn't let me i'm going to look right now i don't i don't forget 
he pitch all year last year with Arizona? No, he was he was uh, like going last. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Okay, so he so he pitched for most of April, most of May. Okay, yeah, yeah. so he he came up, stuck around, and yeah, got released. I just was thinking for some reason I thought he was injured or something a bit last year. Um, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I'll say he makes the team. I'll say he. Because what's the alternative? Did did I don't remember if there was any minor league. It was an invite to major league camp, and then does he have? I wonder the usual like if we don't add you to the forty man by blah 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 date, you get released. I would imagine that's in there, right? Yeah, a couple of commenters are asking about that, and I haven't heard anything from Flanagan, or you know, he hasn't said anything okay. about that. So I, I don't know. Usually if that's that is in kind there, of standard, but yeah, I also made the point. There, I'll it, say he will. We'll make the team. Yeah, I also made the point though. Is like if you don't make the Royals bullpen with the point with the, with the state of the Royals bullpen, that's probably a good sign. It's time to kind of think about yeah. ending your yeah. major league career because you know the Royals are going to give Greg Holland I think more chances than any, another team would, and frankly their bullpen is pretty wide open. They've got a couple set spots, and then you know hey anyone that looks good in Arizona can make the team, and if he doesn't look good in Arizona, I mean maybe they send him to extended spring training, but I mean. If you're not good enough to make the team at that point, you know I don't know. It, it's probably it's probably it. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, Matthew. You know, we talked about bringing guys back for sentimental reasons and and not necessarily for baseball reasons. Is a signing like this? I mean, obviously they're bringing back a little bit for sentimental reasons, but does it make baseball sense as well? Yeah, I think you know, unlike Alex Gordon, if Greg Holland can sort of uh, corral himself and demonstrate him himself to be a good reliever somebody will trade for that at the deadline even if it's just a toss in um so that's i you know i I think that's it's much more likely that greg holland gets traded than alex gordon uh you know because relievers you know like sean said they're they're very volatile um and when they're having a good year they're pretty much having a good year so sometimes it's uh more optimal to trade for someone that you know is in a groove and who's having a good year um, and if, if, if that's Holland, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's fine. He's not been very good, but over the last couple of years, and he, I, I just looked like yesterday and he's 34, which is older than I thought he'd be for whatever reason. Um, so it, it's, it's not a given that he will make the team. Um, but something else that I, that I realized today. So you were talking about like the bullpen spots. Um, the Royals have like 17 guys that I think have, uh, you know, a decent chance of making the bullpen at some point in the first two months of the season. And they are Ian Kennedy, Scott Barlow, Trevor Rosenthal, Tim Hill, Greg Holland, Chance Adams, Jorge Lopez, Richard Lovelady, Eric Skoglund, Jesse Hahn, Kyle Zimmer, Kevin McCarthy, Josh Stamont, Stephen Woods Jr., Gabe Spire, Jake Newberry, Randy Rosario, and Foster Griffin. And there's probably not, like, a whole lot of really top-tier talent, that's an awful lot of kind of similar-ish guys, and whoever someone's not going to make the team that was, uh, you know, had a had an impact last year. Although, again, to Sean's point, they're bad for a reason. So I, that'll be really interesting to see. You know, they've they've signed um, among that list. They've signed Rosenthal and Chance Adams. Uh, signed or acquired, that is, and Steve Woods Jr. Um, and. Uh, Gabe Spire was a, a minor leaguer, right? Yeah, they've signed, they've signed like, but they've signed like four guys to add to this mix. And if all of them make the uh, make the bullpen, and you've got Kennedy, Barlow, and uh, Hill, which were your three best guys from last year, that's 
less like your whole bullpen. So it'll be really interesting to see. I personally would like to see more of Josh Stamont and Kyle Zimmer um, rather than some of those other guys. But there's no real downside to it. And like you said, if he doesn't make the team, he doesn't make the team and he's cut. That happens all the time. It's happened with the Royals before. You know, hey, it, it'll work itself out. You know what? We are we are forgetting that maybe Alex Gordon's going to be in the bullpen. Maybe that's <laughs> what they're thinking for a dual role for him. Well, you know, yeah, you know, I just had, yeah, and I just had this discussion with Patrick Brennan. You know, they they are clamping down on the position players pitching, so unfortunately, we may not see that as much this year. Uh, but yeah, that's a good point. You know, there's it's it's going to be a, a bullpen very much in flux. One name you didn't mention that because um, it's easy to overlook uh, is Braden Shipley, who they signed to a minor league deal. Oh yeah, um, uh, and he's I guess he's more of a he's a younger guy, which is kind of the minor league or the kind of the minor league deal I would like to see them do more rather than like a 34-year-old kind of broke down Greg Holland. Um, but, you know, like you said, like Sean said, like if he shows anything this year, uh, I think teams could buy into the possibility of him, oh, it's the, you know, the Greg Holland of old. I'll give you, you know, a low-level prospect for him. And uh, I know he's a proven closer. I know teams don't buy into the proven closer thing as much as they used to, but I think there is still probably a little bit of a, a an aura around a guy like that. So, uh, Did um you know one guy, I know it's kind of part of our job to cover the Royals. I literally do not remember Randy Rosario at all. From I swear I do not remember a single pitch he threw last year. But he it, threw three point two innings every every year. There's a guy they signed in like September that's like that. And the year before that, it was um, Jerry Vasto. Oh yeah, and then <laughs> I think maybe Ben Lively. <laughs> there's always seems like there's always a guy like that. You're yeah, like Ben Lively. Yeah, I don't remember that guy think yeah well some sorry some players that i think you will remember someday uh, are some of the royals prospects it's prospect list season right now and for the first time really in five years the royals put up multiple entries on a number of prospect lists uh let's go through a couple of them I, i'll just kind of shoot, shoot out the list and then i'll get your reactions uh so mlb pipeline uh which is mlb.com jim callis and jonathan may who did a really good job over there they have Bobby Witt as a number 10 prospect in all of baseball. It's the first time in a decade since I started doing the list that a Royals player has made the top 10. They also have Brady Singer at number 59 and Daniel Lynch at number 61. Uh, baseball America, I think, is kind of considered the gold standard of prospect lists. They have Witt at number 24. Uh, Daniel Lynch at number 39, a pretty aggressive uh, ranking for him considering he missed about a month and a half last year. And then Jackson Coar, the uh, the Florida Gator, who is teammates with Brady Singer. Uh, they have him at number 78. Baseball Prospectus actually has four Royals on their list. Bobby Witt coming in at number 29. Brady Singer at number 63, 64. Daniel Lynch at ni- 93. And then Chris Bubich, uh, the left-hander out of Stanford, at number 96. So, Sean, just what's what's kind of your reaction to where the Royals are ranking and, and maybe kind of a general thought on uh, where the farm system is right now? Yeah, I mean, the first thing the first thing I thought of when I kind of saw all the list is like how different it went than what we maybe were expecting. Because, um, I mean, you think maybe two years ago, maybe even a uh, at least pre-draft of um, 18, you would have thought like, oh, Nick Prado is going to be on there. Matias, uh, Melendez, you're going to have, you know, all those kind of young hitters, Khalil Lee all populate this list but instead it ended up being you know wit wit and then all the other uh the college pitchers taken 
And then you may have even thought. from the 2018 draft. Exactly. Then you might have thought after that 18 draft, oh, well, Singers was the, whatever, number 18 or whatever overall pick he was. Um, Oh, he's going to be up there. Well, he's not on a couple of these lists. Uh, Baseball America particularly is the the one that I'm thinking of. Um, And then you think of, uh, oh, Jackson Coar, the next guy. Uh, He's behind Daniel Lynch. And then you've got Witt Jr., who's up there, but he's kind of, on various spots depending on which list so it's still a little bit of that toss-up um it's nice to see three guys make most you know at least three on most of the list and you could say probably there's four guys overall um across list you know with juniors obviously one lynch is obviously one and then you can kind of split between co-art and singer um mostly but it's and then bubik as you mentioned so really at least four, you could maybe even have a French fifth um, because Bubik might have made some other lists if they went to 120 or something. Um, so it's encouraging at least to see the strength of what the 2018 class could be. Um, but as we've seen all this time, the the hitter depth is, is just gone. It's basically just been replenished by Witt Jr., who you know had some issues in rookie ball this year. Um, so I don't know. It's interesting, but... Uh, it, 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 my the fear is that Singer and uh, probably not Lynch, but say Singer and Coar get called up to the major leagues and they they you know their prospect status expires. Now you've just got Witt Jr. and maybe Lynch, and then we'll see what um, what Bubik does. But you could be back down to two guys essentially, uh, and obviously whoever they take at the fourth overall pick is likely going to make a list too but it's just like it's just replenishment as opposed to like guys popping up now guys could pop up but we'll we'll have to see if that actually happens yeah and two names i think that could pop up um were at least considered for this list but didn't make it were kyle isbell who missed most of last season with a couple of injuries and then eric pena the the young outfielder who was a top international signing last year very very young 16 years old but a lot of people see great tools from him so I think if he shows anything in professional baseball to start out, I think he'll probably get some notoriety, uh, you know, at least once he hits 18, 19 years old. So those are some possibilities to to jump up on the list. Uh, Matthew, what's kind of your feeling on the state of the farm system? It is very, it does seem very pitcher heavy at the, at the moment, which can be a good thing if you're dating more and you think pitching is a currency of baseball. It can be a bad thing though, if you're taking the advice that you had an article a couple years ago, where you suggested that since there's no such thing as a pitching prospect, and so we know the pitching prospects get hurt and fail a lot, that maybe teams should load up on hitters. So what, what's kind of your, uh, your reaction to, the, to these prospect lists? Yeah, I think, well, I think the Royals are doing a really nice job on the, on the pitching side, um, and that's sort of the first time that we've been able to say that for, for ever, maybe. Um, but I mean, if you look at the 2018 draft class, it's just, it's not just the top three, but like pretty much every one of their pitchers, their significant pitchers that they're drafted, like there's like seven of them and they're all doing really, really well. And, you know, I'm, I'm a little different than, um, you know, some prospect people who focus on tools, you know, I'm, I'm for pitchers, especially I focus a lot on, you know, can you get, can you get guys out? Uh, what do your numbers look like? And I think, you know, if you don't have good numbers in the lower minors, you're not going to have good numbers, you know, when you get to the majors or the upper minors, unless you've been hurt. Um, so it's been really encouraging to see the Royals pitchers just do really well. And I think sometimes it's a little bit of an underrated 
type of thing because we see pitchers in baseball, uh, Major League Baseball, who maybe don't have the great, who maybe don't have the best stuff, um, but they, you know, get hitters out. What they do, they do really well, um, and it's really nice to see that the Royals have been doing that. Um, I am a little bit uh, concerned about the hitting side. Um, but at the same time, I also don't think that it's fair to necessarily write uh, Nick Prado and MJ Melendez out um, or write them off. Um, and that's because they're both really young and uh, they haven't really faced a lot of players sort of their age. They've both um, placed or they both face players a lot younger than them um, or a lot older than them. Excuse me. So I'm looking this up uh, at baseballreference.com, which has a lot of really great stuff. Um, they have a, a splits uh, for minor league players. So Nick Prado uh, in 2019, for instance, he had 472 plate appearances. Against younger pitchers, he had six. So for 466 out of his 472 plate appearances, he faced older pitchers. Um, and it's a similar case with MJ Melendez. I do think you can probably give both those two guys another year just, just to see. And it'll be interesting to see if the Royals repeat them again at Wilmington or if they move them up to double a just to get them out of that hellhole ballpark for uh, hitters. Um, but if, if both of those guys just sort of flame out next year, then we can really not panic, but you know, start thinking that um, there's some underlying problems in the system, even though the, the pitching class, which as of right now is just one great draft class um, that hasn't even reached the majors yet. Um, so there's definitely reasons uh, to be a little concerned, um, but at the same time, it's going to be pretty fun this year, I think. Uh, no, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think I think you can kind of see it going either way. I think the Royals right now are probably a middle of the road farm system, and you can kind of squint and, and see, you know, how if they have like a Jonathan Bolin or a Zach Hockey or a Austin Cox, one of those other pitchers from the 2018 draft class, or even Chris Bubich, who isn't really making a lot of these prospect lists, but had a fantastic year if they kind of vault and become like something kind of at least a pretty solid prospect, a Jeffrey Del Rosario who missed most of last year, who's some people think has some pretty electric stuff. I, then I think, uh, you know, that coupled with the number four pick in the draft coupled with maybe Eric Pena showing a little something and maybe a full healthy season from Kyle Isbell. And maybe one of MJ Melendez or Nick Prado or Suli Matias kind of figures it out. Then it starts looking like a pretty, you know, pretty deep farm system. Uh, you know, at least one that you could be, feel pretty good about for the future on the other hand you know if some of these pitchers struggle in double a if some of the 2018 draft class can't handle the juice ball in triple a if the melendez and prado continue to flounder um then yeah, you can see it taking a big step back and that'll, that'll be really concerning so yeah i think in a lot of ways this is a really big year for the farm system and um you know that's gonna have that's gonna uh, be very determinative of how this rebuild goes. So, uh, yeah, definitely be keeping uh, our eye on the farm system. I, I, Sean's you're going to be covering it really well this year. So, uh, definitely, we're going to have a lot of coverage on that this summer. Uh, well, speaking of Singer a little bit, uh, there's an interesting note from Jeffrey Flanagan this week uh, talking about the Royals' rotation, and he did not discount the possibility that Brady Singer could begin the year in the Royals' rotation. Uh, he got a quote from Dayton Moore saying that we don't put limitations on our guys. We have a battle plan like anyone else. We have a script. Like anyone else, when a player might be ready to make it to the major leagues. Strong organizations, healthy organizations, aren't afraid to be flexible in their plans. The player ultimately tells us if they are ready. Now, Flanagan did go on to say that the Royals would also look in the uh, free agent starting pitching market just to add some depth. 
But uh, it seems like Brady Singer will, will at least be given an opportunity to compete for a rotation spot in spring training. In spring training, Sean, uh, what do you what do you think about Singer's maybe his chances to make it, and and is that the correct way to kind of handle him at this point? Um, I mean, we've seen we've seen them a bunch across the board from teams just skipping AAA completely, particularly if the juice ball or the rabbit ball, whatever you want to call it, it has is still in AAA, like we saw it was last year. Really no point. You're not going to learn anything. Um, AAA is probably also a little better spot to send hitters, just because you've got pitchers who have been in the major leagues, kind of know how to pitch. Um, so I think I think it would be okay to skip Triple A entirely, assuming I wouldn't. I'll just say I wouldn't have Singer come right out the gate in the rotation if he quote unquote earns his way there. That's fine, um, but like May, you know, May or June makes the most sense as far as earning it there. Um, I, I definitely wouldn't want him right out the gate to be there. Now you know we, we heard a lot about uh, kind of team's gaming service time and Chris Bryan of the Chicago yeah. Cubs just lost his grievance battle with the Chicago Cubs after they, you know, in, in, back in his rookie year, they delayed calling him up for two weeks just to kind of get an extra year of, of club, club control. The Royals typically haven't done this kind of shenanigans. Uh, I remember they called up Eric Hosmer before the Super 2 cutoff, uh, which would have saved them a lot of money uh, just because they felt he was ready at the time. And Matthew, Alex Duvall had an article this week about how the Royals could kind of gain this, the service time uh, calendar by calling them up, you know, in mid-April when they uh, when they when they would need a fifth starter because they, you know, with all the off days, you don't really need a fifth starter for the first, you know, 10, 12 games or so. Uh, what's your kind of feeling on gaining service time, whether or not the Royals should do it, and, and just your, also your thoughts on Brady Singer, uh, whether or not he's ready to be in the big leagues? Yeah, I think regarding gaming service time, it's only gaming service time if the player is clearly ready and you still didn't call them up. So in the case of Chris Bryant, um, he started in 2013 uh, in the minor leagues where he just sort of tore it up. Um, And in 2014, he played 70 games in AAA um, with a 164 WRC+, meaning he hit 64% better than league average, which is fantastic in his first stint. Um, and he was ready. Like, he, he proved that he was ready. He had crushed double A. He had crushed high A. He had crushed low A. And the Cubs still kept him in triple A just to get that extra little year. It's an entirely different case with the Royals pitchers because their first full season of pro ball was in 2019. You know, Singer has 140 innings of pro experience total. He doesn't have a single inning in AAA and none of the other, you know, pitching prospects. Uh, I get the point that you might want to skip AAA, but also, like, you want to see some consistency and and see him prove it. And I don't think Brady Singer has proved that he's ready uh, to be in the big leagues, and neither has Jackson Kowar or Daniel Lynch. Um, So I don't think that holding them back would be gaming the service time. I think that would just be prudent. Um, If you think about it, so there's three sort of uh, results uh, that the Royals, that could happen to the Royals if they brought up, say, Singer. So the first result is that they bring up Singer and uh, he doesn't pitch until the first part of April, even though he's, uh, he's on the club from the beginning of the year because of all the off days and rainouts. Um, So, 
Option one is he does really well and the Royals just throw away a year of service time for like no reason. And on the other side, you've got the option where they bring him up and they burn service time and he's bad because he's not ready. Well, that's that's not a good result. Um, and then the sort of middle option, which isn't good either, which is you bring him up and he's sort of mediocre. Well, you don't want to burn service time on someone who's just like kind of eh and could learn more in the minor league. So I just don't see any way that makes sense for the Royals for them to bring Singer or Coar up. Um, but I also don't think it's very likely because, as you said, um, they're looking for veteran help um, and the fifth starter thing, you know, they know about it as, as much as us. Um, and they've never really done this, you know, to your, your point with Hosmer. They brought him up after a couple of weeks. Uh, they brought him up, it was uh, early May, I think. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, but they didn't start him, right? So it was a similar sort of situation. So he, yeah, he had been at Double A. They didn't bring him right up to the major leagues, you know, and kick off his service time immediately. The Royals haven't really done that, so I think it's not a really huge deal. I don't think it's very likely. Um, but I think what, if reading the tea leaves here, you could see that the Royals are looking to bring Singer and Coar up sooner rather than later. Yeah, and I think sometimes comments, comments like this are just kind of to light a fire under him, like. We know how competitive he is, and I think they want him to say to go into this. You know, this will be his first big league camp, and they want him to go out and say, "Hey, look, you know, give us give us your best shot, and and we'll consider you for this rotation." And they want him to kind of give a their you know give it his all. And if he forces the issue, and if he just looks dominant against um, you know major league hitters, then I think they will you know they will consider putting him on the roster. I mean, look at uh, you remember a couple years ago at Alberto Mondesi. Uh, you know, had a pretty impressive spring. And I, now I, I think I poked a lot of holes into why it wasn't as, as impressive as uh, people thought. And, and Montesi, you know, sure enough, went out and kind of fell on his face to start the year and was demoted after a while. Uh, but I think they are willing to kind of let guys, uh, uh, you know, may prove themselves and make the team if they are impressive. And so I think, by, I think this is probably a way for them to just kind of motivate him and get him to kind of force the issue. Um, and now, Sean, you know, instead of gaming the service time, what they could do is just sign him to a long-term deal like the Mariners did with Evan White and a few teams have done before. Uh, is that something you could envision the Royals doing at some point? Has a team done that with a pitcher? I don't uh, oh, wait. think so. Well, yeah. Is, have yeah. They? yeah, Matt Moore. Um, oh, was that before he came? Or was that really early? Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Um, Matt Moore, did David Price do uh, I'm trying to think. So the, the uh, examples I can think of are, are Evan, Chris Archer. Evan Longorio is the first one. Yeah. And then I remember John Singleton getting one right. a long-term deal when he first came up. Yep. And, we've and then Evan there. White. I don't know if there's been too many others yeah. other than that. Yeah, Luis Robert, Eloy Jimenez, oh, yeah, Evan right. White, mm-hmm. as you mentioned. Um, did uh, – yeah, there's someone else out there that I can't think of. Uh, um, but, but no but pitchers, yeah. it doesn't seem like. I don't know if they've done it for a pitcher. But anyways – no, I don't think I don't think they'll do that, and I, I I don't I don't necessarily love those deals necessarily. Actually, well, I take that back. There, it depends on the deal. Some of them are great, some of them are bad. But um, no, I think that they, I think they're just going to call them up after the super two. Well, maybe not the super two deadline, but they're going to wait. Um, and even though there might be some moral issues with waiting or gaming service time, um, if everybody's doing it, you're basically cheating yourself and, and hurting yourself because it's a you know it's a zero-sum game essentially so if and it's not cheating so if you are not playing by the same rules of everybody else then you're just hurting yourself necessarily 
Um, so I, I think they'll wait just until the free agency at a minimum. Um, I don't think there's any way he breaks camp essentially. Well, I think it's to, to Matthew's point. I think if it should be a factor, but it shouldn't be the overriding factor. So when yeah. you have a guy like Chris Bryant, who was obviously ready for the big leagues and they are sending him down to AAA under the, you know, very thin guise of working on his defense, then that's, I think that's just bad for baseball. But when you're talking about a guy who's, you know, Singer pitched well down the stretch, but he didn't exactly force the issue. I mean, I don't think anyone is saying, oh, yeah, he's ready for the big leagues. I, you know, he, he might be. Um, but, uh, you know, some a little more seasoning, I don't think anyone would disagree would, would be really, you know, bad and, for him at this point. And with, uh, with Singer, I did want to run through, before we change topics, um, Clay Davenport um, has a projection website. I think he's had his 2020 projections out for a while. Um and Singer has, and I'm not looking at Singer's stat line because it stinks, um, because it's just the way that Davenport does for, you know, players that are in double A or have a lot of innings in high A. They just don't look good in their 2020 projections. But he has a really good player comp, um, comparable players historically. And one of those players is Andy Pettit, just so you know, future yeah. Hall of Famer. Well, he's not he's not in the Hall of Fame, but he's on the ballot. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> He's, he will make – that's why I said future because right. he is going to make Hall of Fame. Well, you know, if Brady Singer is a serious contender for Hall of Fame one day, then that that will be a great – that will be Dayton Moore's greatest draft pick. So. And also right next to Justin Masterson. So, yeah. I mean, that's pretty good company you're talking about Justin there. Masterson, not a future Hall of Famer. <laughs> no. <laughs> Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the Royals starting lineup. Well, the, uh, with the re-signing of Alex Gordon, uh, the Royals should have a pretty good idea of who their starters will be. Uh, the only question now is in what order they'll hit in. Uh, the Royals do have a new manager in Mike Matheny. Uh, he may differ a little bit from Ned Yost in his managerial style. He you know, may still cling to some old-school notions, but we do know that he was not afraid to put a slow, you know, a good hitter who was a slow clod hopper like Matt Carpenter at the, at the uh, leadoff spot. Uh, so he may differ from Ned Yost in that respect. So, Sean, I don't know. Do you? I, I went over uh, kind of my example of a starting lineup. I think uh, Whit Merrifield makes a lot of sense in the leadoff spot, just not only for kind of if you're an old-school baseball guy, but also if you're an analytics guy because he's, you know, probably their best, you know, one of their best overall hitters who's not a big power hitter. Uh, and so I think they can use his on-base and his, his speed at the top of the lineup. Uh, but then I, I kind of like Jorge Soler in the two-spot. Uh, and, and, and Hunter Dozier in the four spot. Uh, and then kind of going from there, you know, on down the lineup uh, with uh, with Alex Gordon in the three spot to start the year if he can still get on base. And then from there, you got kind of the low on base percentage, uh, high slug guys uh, in yeah. from, from there on. Uh, Michael Franco, uh, you've got uh, Adalberto Montesi, you've got Salvador Perez. And at the bottom lineup is, is kind of your, your lower hitters. Uh, Ryan O'Hearn and Nicky Lopez. How would you kind of construct this lineup uh, at least to start this year? Yeah, I think you're right. Merrifield at the top, um, just because he's got you know decent OBP, doesn't strike out much, and can you know steal bases. Um, I would probably do second to traditionally be your best hitter. I could see the argument for Soler. I think I would do. Dozier, who I think might be a better hitter than Soler, um, and I think I, I kind of agree with you. I just want Soler because 
you know, I think Solarian is their best hitter, but I think aesthetically, just I like the idea of having like a doubles yeah. guy that can yeah. run a little bit, um, and I think he's a better contact guy. Although I don't know if the stats actually bear that out, but um, but yeah, I kind of like Dozier hitting second as well. I can, yeah, I, like I, th- I'm with you. I think either one would be fine, and then yeah, uh, gosh, from there, I mean, yeah, you then should put your next best hitter. Um, Which is who? <laughs> I mean, like, right. That's what I'm trying. I don't know, because I mean, the thing is, like, maybe, maybe Merrifield the second best hitter on the team. Maybe he should bat. I, I don't know because you want your best hitter to get the most plate appearances, which you would want Dozier or you would want Solaire to lead off. But we like Merrifield leading off, and that makes sense. Um, but you know, it kind of, I don't know. It's really tough, but I don't necessarily think you could go wrong other than I wouldn't bat Solaire lead off, but I would bat Merrifield lead off is fine. And then you could pick them from Solaire or Dozier after that. I, I don't know. I mean, Mondesi probably, I would have Mondesi before Perez. So I might go Merrifield, Solaire, Dozier, Gosh, I don't like. Uh, I don't know. There isn't any good lineup, and don't even. And I spots six through nine are irrelevant. I literally don't <laughs> care about six through nine um, in any order. Doesn't matter. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, I'd have to sit and think about this, but in the end, it's just nitpicking. But I don't know, Matt. Do you have a Do you have a thoughts on this? You know, I I know this isn't necessarily sabermetrically, um, you know, aligned, but I kind of like Mondesi in the second spot. I think if you think that Mondesi can grow into a, you know, solid good hitter, um, giving him more at-bats is probably more important uh, than, you know, squeezing a little bit of extra juice out of, you know, that second spot. So I, I like to see him there. And also just... Merrifield and Mondesi together at the top of the lineup, I think, um, you know, say it's late in the game and the top of the lineup comes around and somebody gets on like that's there. They have very good uh, stealing capabilities. Um, and it's also pretty fun. You know, if you do Lopez uh, at nine, Merrifield one and Mondesi two, I think that's that's pretty cool. Um, what I would like to see Matheny move away from a little bit is the sort of lefty righty lefty righty thing. Uh, Nedios was always really into, you know, handedness alternation, um, which is my uh, ska band name, by the way. Um, (laughs) And I don't think that's always, you know, the best case, because if you're considering handed alteration, you know, uh, it kind of sort of forces you to, to hit players where they really shouldn't be necessarily. And, you know, I think it'd be okay if you put like three right-handed hitters and then a switch hitter in Mondesi, you know, in a row, I think, I think that's okay. Um, and it's, I, I would just like to see a lineup that works more as a lineup of specific hitters, as opposed to uh, making sure that you can't have the same handed pitcher, you know, face the same handed batter, uh, you know, twice. I, I, I think that's just a little bit too much uh, contortion of lineup construction. So we'll see what Matheny does with the lineup. But, you know, I, I think the the core part of the lineup is pretty set, right? You got Merrifield, Solaire, Dozier um, are probably going to be three of the top four or five hitters. And then beyond that, I mean, does it really matter? Uh, you're right. I, I, I don't think it, it does hugely matter. It'll be interesting to see what 
Salvador Perez is like as a hitter a year later because uh, we haven't really seen him, you know, since uh, 2018. Um, and he hasn't really been a good hitter for, uh, you know, a while. He's had, you know, pretty good power, but he hasn't really been a great hitter since, like, 2016, I want to say. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what, what we get out of him. You know, is it going to be better? Is it is it not? You know, we'll see. Yeah, I, I, that's all. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, it could be, he'll either be better, the same, or worse. It's going to be one of those three outcomes, I'm sure of it. Um, <laughs> Excellent. Hey, I'll do mine real quick, then everybody, you don't have to do all of it, I guess, but you got me thinking, Matt, what's your fun lineup? Mine would be Mondesi, Merrifield, Solaire, Dozier. Let's just say your top four. And then I guess you're right. We'll put Nicky Lopez at nine. But Mondesi leading off because of the speed. And then Merrifield does his one of his just patent uh, inside pitch that he pulls into the opposite corner. But it looks like he's swinging on a pitch that's outside, uh, that really long bat swing he has. Uh, and then you now you've got Reynolds on first and third, and then Solaire home runs to bring him home. And, and then Dozier just doubles just because he can. What's it, What's everybody else's kind of fun lineup? Oh, my, my fun lineup involves Nick Heath. Um, <laughs> in some combination of Nicky Lopez, Nick Heath, uh, with Merrifield and, and Mondesi, just all four in a row. That would be great. And then if you could just, you know, for the hell of it, throw in Bubba Starling and uh, Brett Phillips, that would be a really terrible lineup, but it'd be really fun if any of them got on base. I think you need to re-sign Chris Owings to play like third base and steal bases in that situation as well. I don't know if that's actually fun, but, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I think if this was like a, if this is like 1980s baseball and like, you're doing a, like an old school traditional lineup. It would be it would be Montesi would lead off because he's the fast guy. Merrifield, either Merrifield or Lopez would hit second. Like I can see like a lot of managers doing like Nicky Lopez, you know, because he's a high contact guy and he can handle the bat. Maybe like Merrifield hitting third. Uh, Dozier would hit fourth because he's kind of like the best overall hitter. Soler would be your like your big power hitter hitting fifth. Salvador Perez would hit sixth because he's your, he's your big. Uh, you know, veteran who hits home runs and then like Franco O'Hearn and then did I go through the line? Oh, Gordon. Yeah. So uh, yeah, the baseball's kind of changed, but uh, we'll see what, you know, I'm sure I'll have more discussions on lineup when Mike Matheny actually starts talking about what he wants to do with the lineup. But, uh, but we'll, we'll see how he, how he goes into spring training when they start playing baseball games. Uh, you know, we'll kind of end with uh, talking about that other team at Truman sports complex. I don't know if you guys have heard, but they're playing in a big game this weekend and you know, I just want to get your thoughts on what you think will happen on Sunday, keeping in mind that we're baseball riders. We're not football riders, but Sean, I know you've dabbled uh, a little bit in football analytics lately. What's kind of your uh, prediction on how the game will go? Yeah. So I thought that, so the chiefs have the best player on the field and they have the best offense, but I think that, I think the 49ers are the better overall team because their offense isn't that far behind. Um, their passing offense is really underrated um, because everybody thinks of the running games, obviously because Garoppolo threw 16 whatever total passes in the playoffs. Uh, but their their offense is really good. Their defense is really good. I think they're the better team. One thing that stood out um, that I think could give the Chiefs trouble is that um, I'm, I think I have the numbers right on this, but in the, in the playoffs uh, between all the teams that made it, the AFC 
featured the number one pass defense, the number three pass defense, and the number five pass defense. And, of course, there's only six teams from the AFC who make the playoffs. So half of the AFC playoffs, after the AFC side, featured the one, three, number five defense in all of football. The Chiefs played none of them, and that's almost impossible. That they got the two teams, the 24th and 21st best, and I'm using DVOA here, um, they, they faced, I think it was the 21st and the 24th best pass defense. And so it's like the two teams, the literally the only two teams that they could have played that were just incapable of stopping their strength passing. Now the 49ers who have, I think it's either the second or third best pass defense. So that's what I'm really looking forward to is that the Chiefs actually do have a, 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 an actual competitive team that can actually keep up with them. Um and so it's going to be a great game. Uh, I do also think that, and it seems like I'm crapping on the Chiefs. I'm not trying to do that. Um, but I thought it was also funny that we give the Patriots crap all the time. But imagine if the Patriots snuck in the number two seed because some team that was in the number two seed lost to a crappy team. And then the number one seed was taken out by the number six seed. And then they, and then they, uh, what gosh and then they play you know a, a terrible defense anyways i was just thinking like we imagine if this is the patriots how mad people would be uh so i don't know i think it'll be a close game i think the 49ers win unfortunately but i do think it'll be um a pretty dang good game i'm excited give us a final score uh i'll say 27 i'll say 49ers uh i'll say 27 24 49ers Matthew, uh, what's the what's the verdict on Sunday? You know, I keep thinking back to you know before the Chiefs had this you know magician of a quarterback, um, and if you sort of take take yourself um, out of it a little bit a little bit and sort of look at okay, so we've got two teams here. Um, the 49ers are probably uh, the better overall team. They've got a really good defense. They've got a really good offense. They're really well coached. Um, they got into the spot despite having a really super great quarterback, although I th- certainly think Garoppolo is, uh, you know, definitely serviceable. Um, but on the other side, you got a team that has had a really great run defensively uh, lately, um, and their offense is great, and they're coached by, uh, you know, Hall- future Hall of Fame head coach. And I think the the core thing about this, and we tend to forget about this a little bit because we've watched him play the whole year, but the Chiefs have Patrick Mahomes, and generally in the Super Bowl, you don't want to pick against like the team with the superstar quarterback. Most of the time, the teams that have the superstar quarterbacks end up winning the Super Bowl because they have the largest impact on the game. And I think that as Chiefs fans, we should be just really extremely thankful that that quarterback is on the Chiefs. But I just I just don't see a way that, you know, obviously the Chiefs could lose. But in most situations here, I, I just don't see a way that Patrick Mahomes doesn't keep them in the game and then eventually win it for them. Because uh, he's just, he's simply the best player in football at the most important position in football. And I don't think it's particularly close. And when it comes down to it, you going to want to pick the team that has that guy on the team and, th- and that's the chiefs um i don't think it's going to be a huge blowout i've seen some like really weird scores like oh man the Chiefs are going to blow out the 49ers or vice versa i don't really think that's going to happen um and i also don't think it's going to be like a 40 point game the 49ers defense is legit i think maybe the chiefs score 30 points i think maybe a final score of chiefs 30 san francisco 24 
yeah, I, I'm kind of along the same lines. You know, people are talking about the Chief, the 49ers defense, and it is a very good defense. Uh, but the Chiefs have played three of the top five defenses by yardage in the Ravens, Patriots, and uh, Vikings, and they beat all three of them. Now, they didn't score more than 30 points against any of them, but um, but they were able to get – I mean, I think they scored, what, 26 against the Vikings – uh, no, yeah, 26 against the Vikings. They put up 28 against the, the, the Ravens and scored 23 against Patriots. So, you know, they could still move the ball. Um, and I feel like, yeah, yeah, when you have Patrick Mahomes, I just kind of feel like he's kind of a, a nice security blanket that if the Chiefs are within a possession with four minutes to go in the game, they have a really good chance of winning, winning the game. And it's not like last year where, okay, Patrick Mahomes will, will bring you back, but if the other team gets the ball – they're going to march right down the field and win it too because I think the defense is a lot better than it was last year and it's been pretty darn good the last six six to eight weeks where and it's not great but it's I think it's enough to stop a team that's not particularly dynamic and I don't think the 49ers offense is particularly dynamic they've got a great running game they've got a decent quarterback they've got a couple playmakers on offense George Kittle I mean obviously is, is first and foremost but you know they're not a team that scares me marching down the field with you know two minutes left no, left in the game uh, needing a score like say the Patriots or uh, you know even the Texans I thought Deshaun Watson I think was, was kind of scary uh, so I think this is your year it feels like their year it feels like you know the first of what could be many titles for Patrick Mahomes I mean Sean you mentioned kind of the AFC just the C's parting for them in the playoffs I mean sometimes you kind of need that to happen it's kind of like the Royals when they went on their runs, I mean, they kind of needed some lucky things to happen along the way, and uh, I think the Chiefs, I think they take it. I think it's uh, a close game, but 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 I think they come out on top, thirty to twenty-six, uh, and this team, this this city's going to be partying. I think it's going to be a heck of a celebration on Monday. So uh, the, I think the closest matchup, though, I think a really decent analogy, at least. Now, okay. The Patriots game, right, where the Chiefs did win twenty-three to sixteen, but the the Pats put up a pretty good, pretty good fight. They had that touchdown that should have been a touchdown that they were just out of challenges and couldn't challenge. Um, I think that's going to be the the type of game it's going to be. Um, but I mean, and that's when I don't the Patriots' know. offense was really real. I mean, right. they were they had been really reeling for a couple of weeks at that point. Right, and the Niners have a better offense. That's right. what I'm thinking. It's like, man, I don't know. I, I. I feel like I've seen it both ways, and obviously every fan base is going to be like, oh, our team's going to win by a million points. Um, I don't know. I just think this is going to be a really, really close one. And Warren Sharp, um, who runs Sharp Football Analysis and Sharp Football Stats, um, since these are his numbers. Um, since 2002, when the league switched to 32 teams, the team that ranks highest in offensive DVOA is 4-13 and in the Super Bowl. Hmm. and. The team with the highest defense of DVOA is 11 and six, and the highest ranked defensive DVOA has won four straight Super Bowls. So, anyways, and the oh, excuse me, the team with the highest highest ranked offense via DVOA has lost nine straight Super Bowls. So, I'm just saying the numbers they don't lie. I mean, yes, they often lie, but for my opinion here, they don't lie. <laughs> well, you're going to be proven wrong on Sunday. We'll just see. We'll just see about that. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, but I don't see. I don't expect a blowout by any stretch. I think it will be a very tight game. Vegas has a, a the Chiefs as a one point favorite, and that's that's probably be about right for Vegas. So uh, yeah, definitely looking for a close game on Sunday. Uh, let's wrap it up with the Royals review reviews. Uh, Sean, what do you have for us tonight? 
I finally saw all of my Oscar nominees for Best Picture. Um, I'm trying to th- let me pull it up real quick. I'm sorry, I thought I had it. Um, I want to put them in order. I finally got to see everything. Uh, so my ranking would be Marriage Story number one. I thought that movie was fantastic. Um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think that that movie is going to be like Jackie Brown, where it's kind of really unappreciated now, even though Jackie Brown was fairly appreciated. Um, I think Pam Greer got a Best Actress nominee, uh, but I don't think it was quite known as one of Tarantino's best movies, but it really, really is, and it's kind of slowly become that. Um, Parasite, uh, pretty good. I'm not too excited about the Netflix um, or HBO. One of the two, are, they're going to have a series of based off of Parasite. Um, 1917, I was really underwhelmed by that. I was really excited about it, but it just wasn't, it was good, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't as good as I thought it'd be. Little Women was pretty good. Um, Joker, I don't understand why people really like Joker that much. I thought it was fine. Um, but the dialogue was terrible. The storyline was not very good. It was basically just all Joaquin Phoenix, who I think admittedly, um, should probably win best actor. Um, Jojo Rabbit, I just didn't enjoy as much as people uh, else did. Irishman is the exact same, and Ford vs. Ferrari has no business being in this <laughs> Best Picture category. It it was as if the voters saw Brad Pitt and excuse me, Matt Damon and um, Christian Bale, who I'm like the biggest Christian Bale fan. They saw them, they go, oh yeah, sure, these two have to be. They're in the same movie together. Best Picture. That movie was terrible. Anyways, that's my stuff. I heard it explained that every year there's a dad picture in the best nominee field. Absolutely. And it's usually like a war movie, but this year it's it's Ford versus Ferrari. Yep. Which I haven't seen. Green I don't know Book. if it could be good. I don't know. Yeah, Same Green thing Book's another. Green, yeah. Green Book won it. It was terrible. So anyway. so Marriage Story would be your pick. Who do you think is actually going to win the best picture? Well, no, no. Marriage Story is my favorite for best picture. Yeah, right, it, yeah, that's right. what I would pick. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know who will win it. I, it won't be Marriage Story, and it definitely won't be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the two that I thought were the best films. Um, I think it will be Parasite or um, uh, it won't be Marriage Story, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Little Women or Jojo Rabbit. I could see it being any other ones, but it won't be those four. Matthew, what do you have for us tonight? So I, uh, so my boss uh, at my at my day job reads something like 120 books a year, which is quite a lot. She started off the year um, by reading uh, the entire works of Shakespeare just because she could. Um, and so you may not be interested in reading 120 books a year, but maybe you are interested in reading more books a year. And for whatever reason, recently I've seen um, you know more people just talk about how much they wanted to read more um, just because it's so easy to just you know uh, watch these screens and just watch it um, watch these th- things on TV and on Netflix and, and whatnot um, and you know that's fun but if you want to read books you know there's nothing really like reading a good book and so for those of you who are trying to read more um, I've got um, uh, a tip this is my the best tip and this tip is uh, read books that you want to read. Um, and this may sound a little, a little, uh, tongue in cheek here, but I'm, I'm really serious. Like if you're reading a book and you don't like it, put it down. You don't have to read the whole thing. Um, if you're reading, you're trying to break out and read a genre that you don't like, um, and you're really struggling with it, you know, that's okay. You don't have to like everything. You don't have to read everything. There's so many books, uh, you know, in the world and, you know, depending on the size of your book, it may take you six to 12 hours to read that book. And if you don't end up liking it after three hours, just, you know, 
put it down. Start a new one. Read what you like and figure out what you like too. So it's really easy to read books if you like like what you're reading and when you're not sort of considering them as a project. So that's really my, my tip um, is read books that you like um, and sort of as a personal uh, you know, antidote, I more or less basically only read sci-fi and fantasy books because I know that I like them um, and also just it sort of lets me build some sort of knowledge about the genre in general um, and um, you know I can stay abreast of one sort of genre much more easily than I can than I can stay abreast of you know the entire world of books um, another thing for me is uh, I'm really bad at reading nonfiction books um, even if they're fascinating um, like I've read the ninety percent of the MVP machine, which I thought it was a really great book. I still haven't finished it. I've just got like two chapters left, but I haven't bothered to pick it up and read it. You know, um, I'm I'm often not in the mood to read nonfiction. So read what you like. Matt, I got a whole yeah. stack of nonfiction finance books. Just let me know. What you want? Too big to fail? I got you. You want <laughs> uh, big short? I got you. No, I, th- I think that actually is like it, it may seem obvious, but it's actually really good advice. Like a couple years ago, I said I I, w- I want to read more, and someone had, someone told me that like if you don't like a book, if you if you went like a whole week without reading the book, you should probably just put it down and and, and start a new book or you know try a different book. And there were books that I thought you know I have to read this because I either because I bought it or I felt like oh people are talking about this book I should read it. And yeah, if you sh- if you don't like it, if it's not clicking with you, don't read it uh, or you know put it down and. Maybe in six months you're you're in a better mood or better you know a mind uh, frame to, to read that book, and that's actually happened with a couple of books. I put them down, and like a year later, I'm like, oh, okay, I want to read that now. And I've gotten through so many books now because because of that advice, where I just read stuff you like. I mean, it's just yeah, it seems obvious, but uh, it actually is really good advice. Um, my thing this week is um, so I I'm probably on Twitter too much, and I always get sucked in those uh, give me your hot take uh, questions, which have gotten to become a pet peeve of mine because the hot take is usually here's something that people like and here's why I hate it. And it's just like a way to crap on something that people like. And I don't like that. It's like the hot take is actually taking something that isn't really well received and saying, well, I'm going to plant my flag here and say, I like this thing. And so there was a question this week. It was actually inspired by an XKCD comic um, that was about movies that got under 50% on Rotten Tomatoes, so they were panned by critics, but that you love. And that there was another caveat that has to be, can't be like a kid's movie, it has to be something from your adult life, which they defined as post-2000. And so I was actually, I kind of went through Rotten Tomatoes and like looked at some of the rankings of some movies I thought maybe wouldn't, didn't get particularly well received. And I was kind of surprised at some of the movies I found. Like, uh, you know, Tommy Boy didn't surprise me too much because it's kind of a physical comedy, but I that was... Poorly received. Space Jam, I thought, was... I enjoyed it, um, but it was not well received. Three Amigos, I consider a comedy classic, and that got like 40% rating from critics. Uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance, which I thought was a very adequate sequel to Die Hard. Um, Actually, I guess the third movie in that trilogy. Um, That didn't get very good uh, 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 reviews. But my... So anyway, my pick for the best movie that got under 50% from Rotten Tomatoes after the year 2000 is the movie Super Troopers, uh, which is I think is one of the funniest comedies of all time. The first oh, yeah. 10 minutes of that film, if you've never seen it, I mean, just watch the first 10 minutes and you'll be, you'll be crying laughing because it's just 
really one of the ten funniest ten minutes uh, of any starts of any movies. Um, and and, and uh, you know, those guys, for whatever reason, haven't been able to duplicate that magic in any of the. I mean, Beer Fest is okay, but a lot of their other films and TV shows haven't been that great. But but Super Troopers is just hands down hilarious, and that got a thirty five percent rating from critics, uh, and actually got a ninety percent rating. From audiences, and I think the audiences nailed it in this one. I mean, usually, I think the critics are actually are right a lot of the time. At least I agree with them most of the time. But that's one case. I think comedy is kind of harder for them to get. So um, that's that's my movie for uh, that's my pick for for best. I guess bad movie. Um, are you, are you saying so? Wait, you did like Die Hard with the Vengeance? You're saying? I thought it was pr- that's the one with Samuel Jackson. Yes, I thought it was better than Die Hard two. Yeah, let me let me be straight with you here. I love Die Hard with a Vengeance. Yeah, I it's, it's really fun, right? Love that movie. Yeah. Yep. The only reason I know that Chester A. Arthur was the twenty-first president of the United <laughs> States is because of Die Hard with a Vengeance. Yeah, it's a solid <laughs> action movie. I mean, and and a lot of these, a lot of the movies on this list of like movies that didn't get well received by critics. They're obviously they're action movies or sci-fi or comedy that you know what it didn't connect with critics, but. Somewhere an audience loved it, and um, I, you know, you should you should love movies that the critics don't like sometimes. So, well, that'll do it for us this week. Thanks again to Sean and Matthew for being on the show, and thanks to our readers and listeners for visiting our site. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye.